Have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmela. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode 11, where we'll be discussing the colony at Charlesfort. to hear about Charles Fort? I would love to hear about Charles Fort. I don't think I know anything about this. It's a good story. It's got French accents. I love a Carmel, a special French accent. It's got some religious turmoil. Always fun. It's got espionage. <gasps> it's pretty good. And it's got cannibalism, obviously. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. We're in the early 16th century. Ooh, we really are chronologically diverse this season. We're all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Yours is a nice way of putting it. (laughs) Spain and Portugal at the moment are busy leading the charge, colonising the New World. Ah, yes. However, Philip II of Spain isn't having too much success with the Florida area, actually. His colonies there just aren't sticking. Plus, his Spanish galleons keep getting attacked by French pirates in those waters. So he thinks, you know what? It's not working. We don't need Florida. He decides that they're going to leave Florida aside for now. They're not going to try and colonise that bit. They'll leave it to the gators. They'll leave it to the French. (laughs) France see the opportunity posed by Spain withdrawing from the area and decide they're going to get a piece of the action. Seems like a trap. (laughs) Surprisingly not. Well, I guess, a trap of their own making. Long term. In 1562, the Admiral of France... I'm so ready for this name. Gaspard de Coligny asks Catherine de' Medici, who is, of course, the Queen Mother of France, we all know that. She's a Medici. He asks her to finance a colonisation expedition to Florida. And Catherine is very happy to help assert a French territorial claim. She says, we. She does. She's also keen to gain resources, to stick it to the Spanish. And also, France at the time are having just like a teeny, tiny little bit of religious turmoil with the Huguenots and the Catholics and the Protestants, etc., Ah, who doesn't love a conflict between the Huguenots and everyone else? Well, they don't. They get massacred quite a lot. But then they come and make some nice lace in the East End. That's why you get all those big windows. Because they need to let the light in to do the delicate work. Oh, fun fact. Thank you. Fun fact that's not about cannibalism. Yeah, we have so few of those in this podcast. (laughs) And Catherine's line of thinking is also that a good way to get rid of that problem is to set up some colonies in the New World and then you can just send the Huguenots over there. Get them out the way. So it's sort of a reversal of Jamestown because in Jamestown you have all the Puritans being like, please, can we just get out of here? We want to start our own religious colony, which also goes to shit. 
But in this case, it's like, no, we're going to use you as cannon fodder and make you leave. Very similar to England and Australia, I guess. The Huguenots really get a rough deal. The man chosen for the task. Now, this is a this is a Bills and Boone man, if ever there was one. I hope he's got a beard. Um, I don't actually know about his beard status, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Jean Ribot. Jean Ribot. He's a Huguenot in his early 40s. He has powerful friends in France. <laughs> I really thought you were going to say powerful thighs. He has powerful thighs <laughs> and powerful friends. Both in France and in the English court of good old Queen Bess. That's Elizabeth I, for those of you who aren't on nickname terms. In one of the accounts that I've read of this story, The Tragic Dream of Jean Ribot, an American heritage magazine, 1963, written by Sherwood Harris. 1963. This is gonna be good. Historians were having a wild time in the 60s. I just get the feeling that Sherwood has a bit of a crush on Jean Ribot because it's very, very um, complimentary. Here's a small sample. Ribot was a man of deeds rather than words. Wherever he went, whatever he did, <laughs> he moved men and caused things to happen. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he did. <laughs> so we have just an amazing guy, Ribot, strapping, quite young still. Yeah. Massive thighs. <laughs> Massive thighs. <laughs> I worry about us sometimes. On the 16th of February, 1562, Ribel sets out from Le Havre with two ships, a large sloop. Love a sloop. 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 And around 150 sailors, cavalrymen, and French Protestant noblemen and officers. When you say he has cavalrymen, does he have horses? And if he has horses, have they now been bred enough to be full-sized horses or are they the tiny little baby horses of the crusades you know what it doesn't actually say anything about horses in any of the sources (laughs) (laughs) there's not a horse source in sight that will have to remain a mystery well cavalryman is my translation of googling what the fuck this french word was because it was like a french word that even i didn't want to pronounce (laughs) i was like there must be a roughly english language equivalent of this military rank was it horse boy it said they were a type of cavalryman they have special rifles so off they sail and on the 30th of april look outside a protrusion of land around present-day saint augustine in florida they send out pinnaces but return with news that there's no harbor for the ships just here yet so then they follow the coast north having a look for somewhere to land and on the 1st of May, they enter the mouth of a lovely freshwater river. Firstly, aren't all rivers freshwater? And yet it was specified. And second point, I know the nature of the stories that we study means that things have to go wrong so that we can have a podcast. Well, that's not why they go wrong, but you know. <laughs> Ca- cause and effect. What has our art wrought? Shut up, Melville. <laughs> But the bar is so low for me to be impressed these days. I'm just like, they didn't ram their ship immediately into a rock because they thought they could make a harbour where there wasn't one. They decide to keep going and try and find a decent harbour. Well done. My standards are so low. I will actually say, and as you'll discover throughout the course of this story, it seems like, apart from 
at the very end when it all goes to shit, they're almost doing okay. Well, I'll let you be the judge of that. Let's see what happens. When they enter the natural harbour of the river, the Freshwater River, the Freshwater River, they are greeted by Native Americans on the shore who help them to beach the boats. They have a gift exchange. They all make friends. Ribo names the river the River of May. It's now called the St. John's River. But he named it the River of May, firstly, because it was May. (laughs) (laughs) And secondly, because he was in a really cheerful springtime mood because he was so happy to find the river, apparently. I mean, I can't really talk. My middle name is also the month that I was born. (laughs) But it does display a lack of originality. (laughs) They explore the area around the river mouth for two days and... Ribo plants a stone column to stake France's claim to the land. I know that this is just the case with colonisation, but you get to a place, there's a load of people living there who greet you and show you how to get there and give you gifts, and then you're like, cool, so I'm going to put this big stone column because this is my land now? Like, there are people living there. It's colonialism. It's colonialism, yeah. The French then sail further north. Having heard vague reports from the Spanish of a larger river up that way that's even better than the River of May. Even fresher. Then they pass the present-day border between Georgia and South Carolina, but there they meet fog and storms and they have to head for deeper water to avoid being wrecked. They don't just head straight into the coastline. Yeah. When the storm quietens down a bit, on the 17th of May, they manage to find a large harbour, which is... One of the fairest and greatest havens of the world. And they name it Port Royal, which is, of course, what it's still called today. I know that name. Good. Yeah. I'm Mm. glad you know geography. (laughs) (laughs) They also get along nicely with the Native Americans that they meet here. Their nearest neighbours are the Arista and the Eskimaku. Do they also then claim their land as their own? Yes, Ribo then plants his second stone column that he brought with him all the way from France here. Of course he does. But they're soon visiting each other's houses. Well, obviously they don't have houses because they're on a ship. But they're soon visiting houses, exchanging more gifts. One of the Native American leaders they befriend, Audisto, is a real pal. He introduces them round to everyone in the area. Some of the gifts, for example, exchanged are a lovely chunk of silver ore, which is given to Ribble's second-in-command, Rebe Goulon de la Donnière. So, they found their location. This is where they're going to go. They've got nice neighbours. They've got a lovely river. Everything they could hope for, this is where they're going to put their colony. And their column. Their second column. Their colony. <laughs> I can't help but imagine, as our Bills and Boone hero, He's there with these two massive columns, one over each shoulder, that he's just been carrying from France. He's not going to do a flag. He's going over a full butch column. He's going to plant his large column in the land. (laughs) 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 Moving on. The plan is now to leave behind a selection of men to look after the new colony, to establish it. And in the meantime... Ribel is going to sail back to France to bring reinforcements. You know, farmers, tradesmen, women, the kind of people you need to actually establish a colony. I'm getting the biggest Jamestown flashbacks right now. There are some similarities. He has plenty of volunteers to stay behind because they all just absolutely love it there. It's just the nicest river. 
And in the end, around two dozen soldiers remain. All the sailors go back to France with Virol. On the ship, which makes sense. Yeah, it tracks. Play to your strengths. For the men who would stay behind, they construct a fort and name it Charles Fort. Or I suppose Charles Fort. The way I do French is just to cut half the syllables out. Charles Fort. Yeah, perfect. It's named after their king, who is Charles. The fort is stocked with food, cannons, guns, ammunition. And they don't really need that because they're friends with all the neighbours, right? The American tradition (laughs) starts early. On the 11th of June... The ships leave to go back to France with the promise that in six months they will return with colonists and more supplies. Sure they will. It will not be six months. In fact, Ribot will never see his colony again. But he does make it back to France. We're not at the cannibalism yet. He gets back to France, okay? Oh, okay. Okay. However, on his return, he discovers that the little bit of religious tension has escalated into a full-blown civil war. He returns to his native Dieppe, where he fights alongside the Huguenots against the Catholics until the city surrenders in October of 1562. I'm going to predict that doesn't go too well for him. Well, at this point, he flees sensibly and goes to England, where, of course, he has friends in the court. In high places. He tries to interest Queen Elizabeth in supporting his new colony. She's got her own colonies to deal with, mate. Well, no, she's she's game. And she says, yeah, all right. There's an expedition arranged with the entrepreneur Thomas Stuckley. However, Ribault soon begins to see just like a tiny flaw in his plan when he realises that Stuckley is probably going to try and claim the land for England, right? Like, why would the Queen send an expedition for the French? So, he he's thinking, not so sure about this anymore. And then the Queen, for reasons unknown, withdraws her support. Ribot's solution to this whole problem is to try to escape to France in a Flemish vessel. Some accounts say that this is with his own willing men. Others say it's with four hostages. Sometimes he's stealing the ship that the Queen had prepared for him. In any case, he's absconding from the country without the Queen's consent. And he does get discovered and captured at Gravesend. And then he is imprisoned for two years in the Tower of London for espionage. Hey! Why was he going back to France? They were going to kill him for being a Huguenot. I think he was going to go to France, gather some peeps and then get back over. It was going to be a quick trip. He just wanted to get out of England. Who doesn't? (laughs) (laughs) So he's locked up in the Tower of London. Let's go back to his friends back in Charlesfort who are waiting for his return. Let's play who's having a better time of it. (laughs) Actually, the colony is getting off to a really good start. It's under the management of Captain Albert de la Pieria, who is an experienced soldier, so I'm told. There's plenty of food in the area. They've got beds of oysters. They've got wild turkeys. They've got deer. They've got birds. They've got fish. Loads of stuff. As Ribo noted, it was one of the goodliest, best and fruitfulest countries that ever was seen. I'm wondering how they're going to turn this around to cannibalism. Well, the thing is, the colonists think that in six months, all the professionals are going to return with new supplies, the people with the know-how. So they don't make a lot of effort to 
like really get to grips with the land. They don't set up any agriculture. They're not actually that great at hunting because they're not the professionals. They're just soldiers who've been brought there. They're just soldiers who are meant to be really good at killing things at a distance. <laughs> killing humans at a distance. They rely on trade with the Native Americans for most of their food. And most of them aren't, as I said, experienced hunters or fishermen because actually all of the professional seawater fishermen went back with Ribble to France because they were also sailors. On ships. Yeah, makes sense. As autumn of 1562 turns to winter, however, the Native Americans find that their stores are being run low because of all the extra mouths to feed and they have to withdraw deeper into the woodland to keep going hungry themselves, therefore cutting off the colonists and leaving them to their own devices, which is fair. But the colonists are now struggling a bit because they're surrounded by food and don't know how to get it. Oh God. <laughs> Again, I'm getting... It was Jamestown, the terrible fishing trip. <laughs> With the frying pan trying to scoop fish out the water, yeah. <laughs> Eventually, a small party of Frenchmen strike out to find Odisto. You know, their BFF. Their May. And they join up with his people for a celebration of the Solar New Year. So they have a nice party. A nice celebration or a, we'll have a party and then pass off. We're trying to survive ourselves here. Well, Odisto is a little bit further out, actually, than the immediate neighbours. And he does provide them with supplies enough to last several months and they can return to Charlesport with them. On the condition that they return to Charlesport. Yeah. Please go back home. <laughs> Once they've got the supplies, pop them in the storehouse, they're ready to last the next few months, get through the winter, wait for Ribble. Couple of days later, the storehouse catches fire during the night. Almost all the food is gone, and also all of the hunting and fishing equipment is also burnt. Not that they were making much use of it anyway, but it is now gone. Well, isn't that convenient? I say that like I'm accusing us of setting the fire. <laughs> I went back in time and I set that on fire because I wanted them to read each other. CSI Charles Fort here. Arson done deliberately? Someone inside the camp? Someone outside the camp? Or just they're that fucking stupid? I haven't been able to find any reasons or explanations for it. I Sometimes things do just accidentally catch on fire. You've got lots of torches and fires around camp, you know. I guess it just happens. Spontaneous storage combustion. <laughs> yeah. So their next step are to go back to their neighbouring towns and beg for help. But no one has reserves to spare. They all tell them no. And even if you do have reserves to spare, you're not giving them to the people that, to the best of your knowledge, have just set all of their own equipment on fire. <laughs> you guys aren't managing those stores very well. I think we'll keep you out of this. Another small party takes some canoes south to find Odisto's brother, Ud, who is a leader of his own community, and he gives them a month or so's worth of supplies. They're really depending on the kindness of strangers here. There's just one family who are like, okay, we will look after them. <laughs> But look, the supply issues aren't the only problem at camp, actually. I take it we've had the they're good and competent bit over and done with now. Yes. What else is going on at camp? Captain de la Pieria is a tyrannical leader. He's just a dick. The drummer boy, who is with them apparently, commits a small fault 
That's a direct quote. And he has the boy hanged for it. Jesus. Then a soldier named Lachère does some kind of misdemeanour. It doesn't say what. And in punishment, he is banished to an uninhabited island. De La Pierre promises that he's going to provide food and water to Lachère, but he doesn't keep that word and Lachère is just left to starve on the island. Eventually, there's a mutiny because people aren't happy with this kind of treatment. Can't work out why. De La Pierre is killed and a man named Nicolas Barret takes command. Quite an effective mutiny, then. Yes, and actually, Lachère is rescued from the island in the nick of time before he starves to death, so they get their friend back. I want to be like, yay, but I want to hold that in now because I'm worried about him. I'm worried about all of them. By this time, those six months have passed. We're through the other side of winter, but there's still no sign of Ribble. And also, it's looking pretty hopeless at Charlesfort. The collected decision is made that the best thing to do is to try and get home to France. Oh, God. They don't have any ships with them, and none of them are sailors, or indeed boat builders. Any carpenters? Well, luckily, their local neighbours, the Orista, are really helpful. Together, with a lot of help from the Orista, they manage to build a kind of vessel thing. They seal the hull with pitch and moss. The sails are made from sheets and shirts sewn together. The Orista provide rope. Enough rope for them to hang themselves with, I take it. (laughs) Come on, after the drummer boy, too soon. (laughs) They have created a vessel with which to travel. They have created something which floats. One boy, Guillaume Rufi, decides to stay behind with the Arista and take his chances there. Now, I think Guillaume has the right idea here. Yes, I rather think he does. I also love the idea of just, we will build you a boat. Please leave. (laughs) I mean, what I'm taking from this is that everyone's just really, really pleasant to the Charlesport settlers, actually. Like in Jamestown, there was a lot of fighting going on. I mean, mostly because the Jamestown people were being dicks. But, you know, there was a lot of war going on. There were a lot of tensions everywhere. Whereas here, they're all getting on really well with one another. And I think that the Native Americans just seem to feel really sorry for these stupid Frenchmen who can't even find food for themselves. I think it probably helps that Charles Fort has mostly kept all of their fighting internally they seem to mostly be killing each other rather than turning that out towards the indigenous population which probably endears you to them who knew don't kill potential friends weird if you exchange gifts and act nicely and go to parties with them they'll like you if you stab them they won't in april 1563 the 21 other settlers set off for france A distance of around 3,500 miles. They are not going to make it. The crossing would have been long and dangerous, even for skilled sailors. And if you recall, all of those guys went back to France. On a real ship. (laughs) With navigational equipment. At first, the weather is very calm. So calm, in fact, that there's not really enough wind to move them along. And they're going very, very, very slowly. (laughs) Just sort of drifting. 
After three weeks, they've only made it 25 leagues, which is about 86 miles. Like, they probably could have just walked faster if the sea wasn't in the way. <laughs> At this point, they realise it's going to take a bit longer than they thought to get to France, so they decide to start rationing their supplies. Oh, dear. Three weeks of not rationing, though. Even so, the supplies are soon used up. The men have to eat their shoes and leather jerkins. Yum. Classics of the genre. They run out of water and start drinking seawater and urine. Again, we've seen this one many times before. Couldn't they come up with something original? And their beautifully built boat starts to leak, so they have to bail continuously to stay afloat. I know they're not still within sight of shore, but I do imagine they're still within sight of shore. <laughs> With the Arista watching them like, oh no, what are they up to now? <laughs> <laughs> this situation is made even worse. Even worse. A storm hits. Of course it does. And it damages one side of the boat. The men decide that they might just give up on bailing at this point because clearly they're just gonna drown and they accept this fate they're gonna drown full stop but one of the men insists he knows that they are three days from france this is not founded on any factual basis he is making this up but anyway we are three days away from france and he rallies them to keep going, keep bailing, and to patch up the hole, and they manage it. He rallies the troops, quite literally, and they're gonna keep going, they're gonna make it, everything will be fine. They just gotta hold out for three days. Hardly anything. After three days, they do not sight France, or indeed any land whatsoever, and they are growing very, very, very hungry. A little bit peckish. Already some men have died and have presumably been thrown overboard. I assume the bodies aren't with them anymore. But now, in this extreme despair, certain among them made this motion that it would be better that one man should die than that so many men should perish. They agreed, therefore, that one should die to sustain the others. They're gonna cast lots. It's unclear because the sources differ. Either they cast lots... Name drop. Or they just go, let's kill him. Either way, the person who is killed is Lachère, the fellow who'd been trapped on the island. Aww. And this is why there's a question about whether lots were cast. Because this is a guy who is already not doing so well. He was already starving. And also who presumably did some kind of crime. So if you were going to be making value judgments about your friends, it might come to it. Like, this guy betrayed us that time. But I'll counter with if you're going to pick someone to kill to eat, are you going to pick the person who has already been near starving? A good he question. Twice starved. <laughs> Not very fleshy. In any case... He is selected by whatever means and killed. And then his flesh was divided equally among his fellows and eaten. Just, well, <laughs> just to clarify. As a souvenir of the journey. Now this is actually enough to keep them going. So before they have to turn to a second round of cannibalism, they do actually reach the sight of land. 
Is it France? It's Ireland. <laughs> Close enough. The ship and its survivors figure unclear. Some people say around seven survivors at this point. They did not only do one cannibalism. Yeah. They're rescued off the coast of Ireland by an English vessel. And it just so happens that aboard is a Frenchman from Ribot's original company. And he recognises his former crewmates and makes sure that they're treated nicely by the English. The healthiest of them even have an audience with Queen Elizabeth because she's thinking about having her own colony in the new world and she wants to pick the brains of some professionals, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I think they have a lot of advice on what not to do. She also wants some first-hand information on the situation in France. And so I imagine the conversation goes like this. Uh, This is completely made up. What's happening in France? What are you talking about? You know, with the Civil War. What? (laughs) Yeah, they still don't know about the whole Civil War thing. Yeah, they think they've just been abandoned by their captain. Yeah. Many of the Huguenot survivors don't return to France because, you know, A, they think they're going to be executed for being Huguenots and also, B, they also worry they might be executed for being cannibals. Double feature. Some of them do return. They are planted right back in Dieppe by the English right into the middle of a civil war. Good luck. Off you go. Bye-bye. So, to finish off the story, Guillaume Rufi, the young boy who stayed behind with the Orista, he continued to live in Charles Fort. He was the only Frenchman there for over a year. Finally, the Spanish sent someone to scope out their rivals. They've decided that they're going to come back to Florida and try again. Fuck's sake. Charles Fort is raised to the ground and Rufi is captured and brought to Havana and imprisoned. Uh, but hey, he didn't have to eat anyone. Small mercies. Rubo? Rubo. Gets freed from prison eventually. He attempts to return to the Americas in 1565. Has no one told him that his colony? He is aware of that. He's going to do a new settlement, Fort Caroline. However, his ships are captured by the Spanish, led by Pedro Menendez, and Rubo and his crew are executed as Protestant heretics. Menendez, a.k.a. Rubo's killer, actually gives a very nice obituary for him. The King of France could do more with him with 50,000 ducats than with others with 500,000, and he could do more in one year than another in ten, for he was the most experienced seaman and corsair known, and very skilful in this navigation of the Indies and the coast of Florida. But I did kill him. (laughs) So he had to die. It was very considerate as well of the Spanish for killing him for being a heretic. Technically, the Spanish were then doing the work of the French. Very true. You're a Huguenot. You have to die. I have to admit, I am quite impressed that they didn't resort to cannibalism until they were at sea. And that their floating vessel that I am not going to call a ship actually made it across the Atlantic with anyone still alive on it. But I think they probably had to do more than one cannibalism. I feel like, like I said at the start, they in general were doing okay. And if it just wasn't for the fact that Ribot got himself thrown into prison, they probably would have made it, right? Ribot is the true villain. (laughs) War is the true villain. Thank you for listening to today's episode on Charles Fort. 
I am absolutely amazed that anyone made it across the Atlantic at all. In general, not just about this case. Join us next time when lightning strikes twice at sea. Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod, and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review, and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmella, with post-production and editing also by Carmella and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett. Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network.